You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. Sydney Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop, welcome to the Library and the Writers at Stanton program. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands in which we meet and to pay our respects to the spirits and ancestors both past and present. My name is Margaret Nicholson and I'm the program support librarian from the customer services team. Today I have the pleasure of introducing John M. Green here to talk about his new thriller, Framed. John spent 30 years living the executive life before he decided to dedicate himself to full-time writing. He was then an executive director of a leading investment bank. Earlier, he'd been a partner in two major law firms and a director in a publishing house. His novels include Nowhere Man, Born to Run, The Trusted, The Dow Deception and Double Deal. He's a well-known business writer and commentator and his pieces have appeared in a variety of Australian and overseas publications including ABC Drum Online, Company Director, Business Spectator, The Australian and The Australian Financial Review, The Age and The Bulletin. As well as writing, John is on the Governing Council of the National Library of Australia, is a board member of two stock exchange listed corporations and not-for-profit, as well as the co-founder of Pantera Press. He lives here in Sydney with his wife, the sculptor Jenny Green. Please give a warm welcome to John M. Green. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Stanton Library and Constant Reader up the back. Uh, And thank you all for coming. I'm really, really thrilled, provided you didn't come here by mistake. I get a lot of uh, people coming up to me and saying, John Green, oh, my daughter loves your books. And then I go, oh, you mean the brilliant American young adult writer who wrote Fault in My Stars and so on. And they say, oh. Right, okay. Bye, it's nice to know you. Anyway, so thank you very much for coming out. Um, Because people mistake me a lot, I use my middle initial M. And yesterday I was being interviewed by John Laws. Do you remember John? And uh, what a delightful man. But during the interview on radio, he said to me, what does the M stand for in the middle of your name? And I said, well, what would you expect for a crime writer? It stands for murder and mayhem. Um, Now, how many of you have actually read Framed? Put up your hand. Oh, the library, my publisher. Great. Okay. So I'll tell you a little bit about it. Framed is my sixth novel, as Margaret said. Um, My previous three were spy novels All six of my novels star female heroines. Uh, And that was a very conscious decision of mine back when I wrote the first one, Nowhere Man. Uh, Back then, there were really very, very few female lead characters in the crime or thriller genre, and whether they were written by women or men. And I thought, well, I want to do my little part in uh, addressing that Deficiency. There's no reason at all why crime thrillers can't have fantastic women leads. And I've been doing that all the time. People say to me, you know, hey, um, just looking at you, you don't look like a woman. 
you know, how do you do that? Um, well, so far, it seems to have been really successful. And how I've done it in Framed, because the character, the lead character, JJ, is a uh, mid-30s, very self-effacing uh, art conservator at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And if you haven't noticed, I've already said I'm not a woman, I'm not in my mid-30s, and I'm not an art conservator. So my research into the role took quite a bit of effort. So firstly, I work with a lot of young women, so that's one of whom's up the back, um, so that's kind of handy. I had a brilliant editor who's a younger woman, and that helped because she would say to me when she read the manuscript, would JJ really say that? Would she really do that? Those kinds of things. And that was extremely helpful. And I spent about 25 or 30 hours listening to or watching uh, streaming of mid-30s, late-20s, angsty female stand-up comedians. So I was getting all of the angst of young women, you know, in, in this modern era, what worried them, what didn't worry them, and so on. And I found that actually really helpful as well as hilarious. So that helped me a lot. And in terms of JJ being an art conservator, um, I love art. Uh, I'm surrounded by art in my daily life. My wife is a brilliant sculptor. And her art, in fact, has been on exhibition out in the park here from time to time, courtesy of North Sydney Council. So look out for her work, Jenny Green. And, um, uh, but, but, I, but I've never been a conservator, and I've always been intrigued by how do you work out if an artwork is fake or a fraud? Because this book is about art crime and about finding some extremely valuable artworks, and, which JJ does, uh, and she's got to prove whether they're fake or fraud. Um, so I had enormous help from, before I get into the story, etc. I've had enormous help from the Art Gallery of New South Wales, where a good chunk of the book is set, uh, and the con conservation staff there were brilliant. And they took me into their inner sanctum. I was able to play with the scientific equipment, both portable and um, you know, fixed in the, in the uh, art gallery. I saw how it was done, what you look for, what the techniques were, and so on. And so when I was able to translate that to the page, I, I hope it has a lot more authenticity. In addition, I gave them the relevant chapters and said, point out where I'm wrong. And, you know, they did that as well. So uh, if there's any... There are some literary flourishes that they might not like, but uh, generally speaking, it's very accurate. And I also had help from the same conservation staff at the Van Gogh Museum in um, Amsterdam. So you'll see that... I'm wearing this, this uh, T-shirt of what I think is Van Gogh's greatest of his uh, sunflower series that he painted in Arles in France in 1888. This one went missing in 1945. The story is that when the Allied bombers were about to bomb Hiroshima, uh, they first bombed Kobe in Japan. And in... A, Shia, a, a small part of Kobe, a very wealthy Japanese businessman had bought this painting in 1920 and put it on the wall of his home. And that 
home got bombed. So when he raced out, he couldn't get it off the wall because unlike, you'll see here, the frame is a very thin orange frame because when Van Gogh painted this, he was trying to mimic a stained glass window in one of the great churches. And so he wanted this very thin orange frame. And if you focus in on the flowers, you'll see that each of them has a very thin orange outline, like the lead but coloured of the stained glass windows. But the Japanese businessman put a really humongous gold frame on this work. And when he tried to lift it off to take it with him, he couldn't get it off the wall when the sirens were blasting. So he ran out, came back the next morning, house was demolished, artwork probably gone. But I thought, what if it wasn't? What if someone took it? What could have happened to it? And I'll come back to that. So while frame is about art and art crime, it's also about families and relationships. And there are three families. Uh, there are the Farrellys in Belfast. It's a dynasty uh, of, uh, or the, the founder of the family, Connor uh, Farrelly, was an IRA gunrunner and fundraiser back before uh, the, you know, the, um, uh, everything stopped. He then went legit and has a very big international business in pharmaceuticals, legal and illegal. Uh, and he hands the business over to his two children, a daughter and a son, and there is massive rivalry between the two of them, Nessa and Neil. Uh, Nessa is the, the girl, she is the brains, and Neil is the very ugly brawn. Then in Monaco, we have the Fontaine family, and the Fontaines run a law firm. It's a very prestigious law firm in Monte Carlo and a very respectable one, but unknown to everybody who works there except for the senior partner. The work that they do for the Farrellys also is for their organised crime syndicate. And they have a cache of art which they use to fund their operations. One of the works there is this Van Gogh painting. How it got acquired by them, you'll have to read the book. The other paintings that they have there include works from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. I don't, have, have any of you been there or visited that museum? It's an extraordinary... Ah, oh, yeah, we have one over here. Excellent. I mean, as you know, it's an astonishing museum. This woman, Isabella Stewart Gardner... Uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, very wealthy. She built this kind of Italianate mansion, multi-storey with this big atrium in the middle and filled it with the most beautiful paintings that she bought from all over the world, including by Rembrandt, by Degas, by Vermeer, a whole lot of those. And when she died in her will, she gave the museum and all of the art to the city of Boston on one stipulation that none of the works could be sold, no works could be bought and added to the collection, and none of them could be moved. It had to stay exactly as she had set it up uh, all those years ago. And until 1990, so almost 100 years, that was exactly what happened. And then on St Patrick's Day weekend, 
in Boston. And Boston, as you know, is a very you know, Irish kind of city. Uh, so St. Patrick's Day is quite big there. Two policemen turned up at the museum at about one o'clock in the morning, knocked on the door and said, look, we've had an alert at the station. We need to come in and check out the museum that everything's okay. So the two night watchmen, who were music students, let them in, the door closed, and the two policemen said, this is a robbery. And then for the next 81 minutes, they ransacked the museum and they used, uh, what do we call them here, Stanley knives, they call them box cutters over there. They used box cutters to slash some of these paintings out of the frames, hence the cover of the book. Uh, and they took three, van- three Rembrandts, five by Degas, one absolutely gorgeous painting, the concert by Vermeer, and there's only 34 Vermeers in the world, and they took one of them, uh, plus a bunch of others. And that was 1990. The police believe they know who did it. There have been documentaries about this robbery. There's a brilliant one on Netflix that I really recommend that's actually called This is a Robbery. And um, the works have never been found, not one. Uh, So I wondered, my wife and I were there a couple of decades ago and saw these empty frames on the wall. The gallery, the museum, has left the the frames as they were cut out and slashed on the walls as a reminder of what happened in 1990. And as we left the gallery, I said to Jenny, you know, where are the works? I wonder where they are. And I started... This kind of stayed with me for decades. And when I was... um, coming up with Framed, I really wanted to write a book about art and art mystery and art heists. And so I thought, well, what if we found those works? Or maybe we found those works. And what if we found them here in Sydney? You know, how would all of that, how would all of that go? Uh, so that was kind of where that came from. And then when we get to Sydney, as I mentioned, we've got JJ. JJ is Justine Vincent van Gogh Jago, that is her full name, and that is why she calls herself JJ, because it's kind of embarrassing. As I said, she's very self-effacing. And her family folklore, uh, unproven, is that uh, they are direct descendants of Vincent van Gogh. Now, he had no children that we know of. Um, he, there was a local brothel in Arles that he frequented, uh, and in fact, when he cut off his ear, he, he took the ear and gave it to one of the people in the brothel. Um, The person in the book that he had the affair with was a respectable married lady of the town. Uh, Probably not respectable in their eyes, but very respectable in mine. And so uh, JJ's father believes that they are direct descendants of Van Gogh, so his name is Hugh Vincent van Gogh Jago, or Hugh Jago, or as JJ likes to call him, Hugh Jigo. And the relationship between father and daughter is squalid. Um, They are estranged. They've been estranged from the time that she was 18. Uh, This family has um, uh, coercive control. He is a very, very difficult man. He's a detective, which is very convenient in the story. 
but he's a very, very difficult man. And uh, when, as you'll read, when his wife dies, she asks JJ not to let him come to her funeral. Uh, such was the angst between them. Um, JJ is dyslexic, so in terms of words, not art and numbers. So a career in the arts is kind of very natural for her. And so we have in that family um, mental illness, we have dyslexia, we have co coercive control, we have estrangement, and then do they get together? What happens uh, about that? So people kind of say to writers often, write what you know. Um, I write crime thrillers, people get murdered. Now, I've thought about murdering people, but I've never... And you probably have too. I see a few nods in the audience um, and some people pointing to other people in the audience. Uh, but I've never actually done it. So I don't know how you write what you know if you want to write murders into your books. Uh, I didn't know anything about art conservation. All I knew was I knew about art. And so... I'm fundamentally a very curious person and my theory is, anyway, that if something fascinates me enough, I can find out what I need to know about it uh, from research and from talking to experts and then I can kind of infuse that onto the page. Uh, in my previous books, for example, the, the, spy, the spy thrillers, were about hacking, they were about... Um, deep fake videos, all of these things that we read about that maybe we're not experts in, cyber security. I'm actually on the board of a cyber security company, so I had lots of help in terms of the detail there from people who really were spies and um, experts in cyber security. Um, but anyway, so we've got these three families and their tensions... Uh, and then I bring them together in this one story where a bit of it is in Belfast, a bit of it is in Monte Carlo, a tiny bit is in India, and then the bulk of it is here in Sydney. And very briefly, JJ fancies herself as a photographer, uh, because not a painter, because that's too close to work, but photography is her passion, and she's always running around with her camera, taking snaps. Uh, and she fancies herself as the new Annie Leibovitz. And she's very lucky because the new director of the Art Gallery of New South Wales has asked her to house-sit her apartment, which is in the Finger Wharf at Woolloomooloo, um, where some of you will know Russell Crowe lives and John Laws lives and it's where all those lovely restaurants are, and there's a marina there. And then opposite the Finger Wharf is a row of terraced um, townhouses that look pretty ritzy. And so one day JJ is going around taking photos, and she hears a, uh, like a crack and people yelling, and there's something going on in one of those townhouses, and she ta starts taking pictures. Um, and then when she looks at these pictures later, she notices that when one, a woman, a very beautiful woman, who she says looks like the girl in the pearl earring by Vermeer, comes out of her 
balcony, onto the balcony, and looks what's going on at her neighbour's townhouse, she sees a hint of a painting behind her that looks like Rembrandt's Christ in the Storm in the Sea of Galilee, which is a painting that was stolen from the Gardner Museum in 1990. And we go from there to how do I get access to that painting, how do I meet that person, how do I work out if it's real or not real. And then she also spies this in there as well, the sunflowers, six sunflowers by, by Van Gogh. So uh, that, in a nutshell, is the story. The, the other two characters in the story who I just adore and I want to show you a photograph of because if you read the imprint page where it always says all the characters in the story are fictional, there are two characters who are not fictional and this is who they are. They're two dogs. Oh, sorry? Oh, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. Here we go. Right, there we go. You got it? Two dogs. So the one on the left is uh, Scotty. That's my son's dog, so my grand dog. And he is, he is what you call a lurcher, which is a combination of whippet, greyhound, and who knows what. Um, absolutely gorgeous dog. And the other dog is my daughter's dog, uh, Winston, or Winston Jr., uh, because Winston, the original Winston, was a four-foot-tall or one-and-a-half-metre-tall uh, teddy bear that she got as a little kid who was exactly the same colour. So she called this dog Winston Jr. And both of those dogs are in the story and they're crucial because you know what it is with when you're walking a dog, other people talk to you, especially if they have dogs. And I was trying to work out a way for JJ and the owner of the artwork to meet and I thought, I know how to do that. I'll use my grand dogs and make them stars. So um, that's, that's, uh, they're, they're beloved characters in the story and they're the only real ones. So that's probably enough from me. Uh, over to you for any questions. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, we're recording this for the podcast. So if anyone has a question, I can walk around with it. Otherwise, I will start you off. Can you tell me about your writing day? Like, how do you go about your process of writing? Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a good question. Everybody does it differently. Um, and uh, I'm sure you've heard this before. There are plotters and there are pantsers uh, in the writing game. Plotters are people who really do a detailed plot outline of the book and pantsers are people who write by the seat of their pants. They just have a vague idea and they just start. And I have writing friends who are pantsers and I have writing friends who are plotters and I tried pantsing once and I can't do it. I have to plot. Uh, and for me, particularly in this type of books that I write where there's a lot of twists and turns and so on, I need to think all those things through early so that I've got the guideposts um, in the book as I write. That said, the book always changes and the plot always changes as you go. And I'll, I'll explain that this way. Let's say you wanted to walk from Stanton Library here 
to North Sydney Station to take a train home or to the city or whatever. You know where you're starting from, you know where you're going, and you know what's in between. So you can kind of plot that out in your mind uh, very accurately. But you start walking down the hill here and you meet a friend. And the friend says, did you hear that Frida uh, just won the lottery? And you go, wow, that's incredible. And then Frida's around the corner in the cafe and you go and have a drink at the cafe. And then this changes the way your afternoon is going to go. And all of these things happen when you're writing a novel. Because as you're walking down the path that you've set, you kind of meet different people that you think will infuse the story at any particular time. And that changes what you're thinking. And also, the way you thought about a character changes. Because you think, no, they wouldn't do that, actually. Now that I've really developed them and I've kind of got them doing things, that's not something that they would do. So that's how that part of the process works. So I try to plot it out and then change it as I go. I'm a very early riser, uh, so when I wake up, I'll often wake up at 4 or 4.30 and I will uh, start writing. And I love that. Um, don't imagine me naked at my typewriter, please. That's not a good thought, but that's what often happens. Um, you know, I sneak out of bed and go down there, go to my office and, and start writing. Um, uh, I do a few other things as well, as Margaret from the library said, and so I try to blend all that in together, but writing is my real passion, so I love to get to it whenever I can. COVID was a boon for me in that respect. It was terrible in many, many other respects, but it meant that I couldn't travel anywhere, any of the meetings that I went to I didn't have to commute to because it was all by Zoom. And so I had a lot more time to devote to writing this story. As well as that, uh, I had to have open heart surgery uh, early last year. And that was kind of interesting experience, but it was also terrific in terms of what it meant for this book because it kind of reawakened uh, my thinking about life. And I tried to put some of that into the story, not in a, in a depressing way, but how important life is and uplifting life is and relationships are, hence the kind of focus in, in the book uh, about relationships. I write anywhere. Um, I'm able to cut everything out if I have to, just to ask my wife, who gets very annoyed by that when she's talking to me sometimes. Uh, but I can write you know, at my desk, I can write in the garden, I can write on a bus, I can write on a train or a plane. It, I don't need a space because I'm somehow able to create that space around my head uh, so I can really zone, be in the zone, as we often say. Um, so does that kind of help? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, anyone inspired to ask a question? Um, thank you. Um, I'm sorry I haven't yet read your book, but I will be buying it. Um, thank you. Uh, so my question is about drafts. Do you do lots of drafts and do you workshop it or do you, is it a very internal process? I do do a lot of drafts, and I'm, um, I keep going backwards all the time, uh, 
even though I shouldn't. I mean, again, there are writers who will bash out a first draft very, very quickly, and it will be more of a skeleton. Uh, I don't do that. I mean, I've got my plot to guide me, but I try to make it really good as I'm going, and then I keep going backwards to change it. So uh, there would be thousands of drafts in that sense. And then when I finished, I will go back several times. And then my my first reader uh, is my wife, who is a really good critic. You know, often people tell writers, never show your work to your family because they're too nice. She isn't. <laughs> At least when it comes to, you know, criticising my work. And I do the same for her sculpture. You know, you've got to be honest with each other if you're, you know, kind of trying to help uh, lift something. And she has what I call the Jenny eye-glazing theory. So if ever she's reading part of the book and her eyes glaze over, that bit's got to go. You know, it's kind of not even uh, an argument. It just has to go or it has to change in some way. Um, so, yeah, lots of, lots of drafts. And then, of course, when it gets to the publisher, um, that's a great process. I always say that a book is not written by the author. A book is written by the author, the editor and publisher, the reader, and the bookseller. Now, why is it those four people? So all I've done is I've put down words on a page. Uh, Unlike a movie that you watch or a TV show, which is a passive process when you enjoy it, because everything is done for you. The colour, the action, the sound, everything. For you, the reader, all you've got is a black and white image on a page, the words, and you've got to read it and fill it with all of that colour and light and movement and everything else. And you bring to that, you know, you would bring to it different things to you because your lives are different, your interests are different and so on. Uh, So for me, the book is part writer, part reader. It's also part publisher because... Uh, the relationship between an an editor and the writer is just absolutely crucial. So, as I mentioned, I think, earlier, you know, my editor would say to me, would JJ really say that? Would she do that? Um, This part of the subplot is slowing things down. Can we get rid of it? And, you know, there's an old adage in writing which is, kill your darlings. You know, you have to kill your darlings. And you do. Um, Sometimes you do. It's painful. It's agony, it's frustrating, but also there's an ecstasy about it because when you do do it, you realise that all those months you spent crafting that beautiful character wasn't really a waste of time. It was character building for you, but, you know, it doesn't help the book. And then lastly, there's the bookseller and the library uh, and the book reviewers because how do people get to find out about a book, right? How do we get the book into people's hands if it's not for libraries, booksellers, book reviewers? How do you hear about it? Word of mouth, again, that's readers, but we need... So this is an ecosystem that is really, really important and why it's essential that, you know, we all play a part. But for me, uh, it's very much around the reader is a crucial part of the book and so, you know, as well as my wife, the editor, there are a number of other people who will read the book before it's published to kind of try to make it as good as it can can be. Because when I type the end, uh, 
when I think I've finished and I think, gosh, this is perfect, eh, well, often it's not. You know, don't tell anyone I said that. Now, I've, I read the book and I thought it was fantastic. I read half of it and then I left it on my desk at work and I was kicking myself because at night time I was thinking, where is the book, where is the rest of it? So I thought it was so good. I thought, has anyone asked you about a movie for anything or a TV series for this one? Well, funnily enough, yesterday. So, but look, don't get excited about that because Too that's late. happened before and nothing's happened. So m- mostly nothing happens, but I'm fingers crossed. That's, that's very exciting. So, and then would you like to talk about the relationship, you know, was huge ego based on someone that you know? Ah, right. So when I said, you know, I tend not to write what I know, um, the relationship between JJ and her father and mother is very much the relationship that existed in my house. And uh, when, when I was growing up, we didn't have the language coercive control. Uh, We didn't know what that meant. We just knew that uh, my father was an extremely difficult man who had massive highs and lows. At some point it was called manic depression um, and years later it was called bipolar. Uh, But by the time I left home there were no treatments that he was having and it was just a horrible kind of environment, but not entirely horrible. So he had a love of books and he also had a love of art and I probably got that from him. We couldn't afford books uh, or art for that matter, so I grew up in King's Cross. My parents were kind of um, refugee immigrants from war-torn Europe and we lived in a little flat in King's Cross and there was a library uh, at King's Cross that I used to go to a lot and borrow books from and my dad kind of would point me to lots of books. Of course I had golden books that I loved as a kid and comic books that I loved but he made me read 1984 and Brave New World and books like that when I was quite young and they kind of taught me how uh, books can teach you about life, fiction can teach you about life. A lot of men, and there are a lot of men here, a lot of men only read non-fiction, they tell me. Lots of my friends tell me that. And I say to them, you know, you're missing out on a lot because fiction actually tells you a lot about non-fiction. It tells you about life. It teaches you about empathy. It teaches you about relationships, you know, and all of the things that uh, are important. And these are the same people who will watch... TV drama and Top Gun at the movies, and you say, but that's fiction. And they say, oh, yeah, but it's different, you know. Um, So, yeah, he taught me that. And also he worked in a factory in Paddington, and across the road from the factory was a, what I didn't know at the time, but was a very famous art gallery. I was only a kid. And we used to go across there after school. He would take me across there, and we would look at the artworks, and they were by painters I'd never heard of, like Brett Whiteley and people like that, that later on I got to understand were really important painters. They, they were probably emerging artists at the time. We're talking kind of... I won't tell you which decade because it'll give it away, won't it? But um, so, you know, there are pros and cons to these kinds of relationships and I tried to create some of that pros and cons in the relationship between JJ 
and her father, Hugh, as well. Uh, and I hope you enjoy that. Uh, any other questions? Oh, I've just got one more. Can you just tell me which is the sixth sunflower on your right. T-shirt? Well, that's, that's also a good question. This, this, um, this painting was actually added to. So when he painted originally, it was smaller, and he didn't like how it, uh, how it was um, coming out. So he added a piece of wood at the top uh, and then added this, this extra flower here. Uh, and so what you'll see, if you look carefully, there's one, two, three, four, five, six there. Six there. They're kind of half dead. And um, the, the, uh, w one of the really interesting things for me when I was researching this was, what would this painting look like today? It would not look like this, bright, brilliant, vivid, oranges, yellows, this kind of um, cobalt blue background. Uh, you know, and for people listening to the podcast, Google six sunflowers, Vincent van Gogh, and you'll see what I mean. Uh, it wouldn't look like this at all because some of these colours hold fast and some of them fade. So I got that from the Van Gogh Museum and there's a... Um, so, for example, at the bottom, there's a lilac tablecloth. That lilac would be a kind of a dirty grey today because of the way the paints work. There's a, a red in it that's called geranium lake that really fades over time. The yellows... Uh, many of them would go brown. So, again, it would look kind of a dirtier colour than it would today. Uh, and this, this um, photograph on the T-shirt was taken from a print that had been uh, lost in a Japanese art museum uh, that a, a, an English art journalist found in 1913 when he was rummaging through the archives of this museum. He's written a number of books about Van Gogh, his name's Martin Bailey, and they're extraordinary books. Whoops. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Which, my apologies, I meant to turn that off. Um, that was Martin Bailey, by the way. He's, whenever he hears his name, he rings me and says, thank you, uh, please send me a royalty for, 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 the, the, for the reference. But he was, he was rummaging around in this drawer. By the way, in the original draft, I wrote he was fossicking around in the drawer. And then I sent that to him just for checking. And he said, what the hell does fossicking mean? And I said, what do you mean, what does fossicking mean? Everyone knows what fossicking means. And uh, he said, well, I don't. I'm English. I have no idea. And then I looked it up. And it says Australian and American. So it's a gold rush term. So I thought, OK, well, I'll change the word to rummaging, which is now the word that's in the, in the book. Um, I had a similar experience with my first novel where I used a word, I don't know if I can use it on the uh, podcast, but I had a character calling someone a wanker and I had an American editor for that novel, that was Nowhere Man, and he said, I know what that means, but Americans wouldn't have a clue. You know, it's a British and Australian term. You've got to think about that when you're writing these novels. Um, so I do, um, but you don't always know what's a purely Australian term and what's a, uh, an international term. So in this book, I thought, bugger it, I'll use some Australian terms and the others can find out about them. So, you know, at one point, uh, JJ wakes up at Sparrows and I think, well, we know what that means and if someone doesn't, they can look it up. 
Thank you so much, John. Thank you very much for coming. Let's thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of Writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.